0: Last week, we began looking at John chapter 4, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And it, uh, it, it, the chapter opens with John the Baptist having gone to prison. Uh, Jesus heads for Galilee. But he says that he needed to go through Samaria, to go to Samaria. And we saw there that he had a divine appointment, that the Father had ordained that he go to Samaria, the center part of the country. Now, this, this, the area of Samaria in Israel, uh, it was the center of the area, the southern part being Judea, the northern part being Galilee, and the center part, it's where modern day, the West Bank, it's about roughly the same area as the West Bank, that being the West Bank of the Jordan, River, so anything west of the Jordan River, there's this big circular chunk in the middle of the country, and that's Samaria. It's not the exact same borders as the West Bank today, but it's roughly the same area. And so rather than go up to the backside of the Jordan River uh, along the Jordan Rift, which is what the Jews did because they didn't even want to get a speck of dust on their sandals that they considered that, that would make them unclean because there was so much enmity, hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans, that Jesus cuts right straight through. He doesn't go into that whole deal that they were doing, uh, the, all the bigotry and all of the hatred between these peoples, and it was 700 years old. We talked about that. I'm not going to go into that in depth again, but just to sort of lay the, the groundwork for this morning's message, we have to sort of revisit that. And so here he's come up to Samaria. He sits down by a well. He's by himself. His men go off into town to get food. And this woman comes up with her water pot and she goes to get well water and he asks her for a drink. And she says uh, very pointedly to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask water from me, a Samaritan woman? In other words, this is just not done. Uh, we don't have any dealings with each other. And, and her prejudices come to the surface immediately. And Jesus doesn't respond to her prejudices. He just simply presses on. And he enters into this dialogue with this woman. And, and the dialogue that he has with her is, if you'd ask me for water, I wouldn't give you this kind of water, the, the well water. I would give you living water that will produce in you this, this torrent of water that will gush forth. And we see that in other parts of the scripture. And so he says, I would have given you living water. And she says, well, wow, you don't even have a bucket. <laughs> And and uh, she's she's still equating things in, in sort of an earthly plane. She's not reaching into the spiritual. All Jesus is giving her spiritual principles. He's giving her spiritual concepts, and she's not getting it. There's some blindness going on. We're going to talk about that as we go this morning, and so. Then uh, they go through that whole dialogue, and and, uh, she says, well, you know, I perceive that you're a prophet, because he tells her now, he says, go get your husband and come here. And she says, well, I have no husband. And he says, that you've said correctly. And discovering that she was a woman who had had five husbands, and the guy that she was living with now wasn't her husband. She was living uh, in a, a sexually immoral lifestyle, essentially. And again, he doesn't beat her up with that, nor does he condone it. I mean, think about it. That's what Jesus does. He comes to us as we are, and he doesn't say, look at you, you filthy sinner. He says, let me show you a better way to live. Now, repent of that sin and and come with me, follow me. And that's what he's doing with this woman. And so, she essentially goes through this whole deal with him, and we pick it up in verse 20, uh, and she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that Jerusalem is a place where one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So he tells her, essentially, look, it's not about where you worship. And when she's talking about this mountain, she's talking about Mount Gerizim. We'll talk about that in a moment, Uh, which was a mountain there near Sychar, which was the, the town where the woman had come out of, which is right next to ancient Shechem where Abraham landed and all of that. Uh, And so she's saying, you know, what about this mountain? This is where we worship. What about you guys? You say that Jerusalem's where one should worship. And and he says, no, wait. Uh, Remember when, when we were looking at Jesus cleansing the temple, we talked about God is finished with the temple as a physical building, because now the temple is what? You and I. If, if I've received Christ, then my body literally is the temple of the Holy Spirit, that I am the dwelling place of God. And Jesus being the first one uh, who that was the case with, is saying it's not important where. It's important how you worship and who you worship. The Lord is speaking. God is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And so he brings that home to her. Now, uh, if we go to the next slide here talked about last week I, this is the only slide i'm going to bring for, forward from last week we talked about, about mount gerizim and mount ebal and, and the difference in these mountains is in, in, it's really interesting to me this again it would be like in the west bank area right in the middle of israel and in deuteronomy what The Lord told Moses, he said, Now it shall be when the Lord your God has brought you into the land which you go to possess that you shall put blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Now Mount Gerizim was where the Samaritans had built their temple. And about 140 years prior to Christ, uh, a Jewish general came in and tore it down. But they still worshiped there. These were sort of half-breed people because they were displaced by the Assyrians 700 years before and so they had intermarried with the foreigners that had come into the land and so they weren't looked at uh, upon uh, remember a jew to a jew bloodlines were extremely important and so those bloodlines had been diluted and so the Jews said, you're not real Jews. And then they took Judaism and they mixed it. And it tells us in Second Kings, is a passage there that says that they literally worshipped the gods that they brought with them, these lowercase g gods. And so they were half-breed people with sort of a half-baked religion. And they were very much looked down on by the Jews. But when Joshua came in. You can see in Joshua chapter 8, Joshua fulfilled what Moses said back in Deuteronomy. He put six of the tribes against Mount Gerizim here on the left, six of the tribes against Mount Ebal on the right, and they pronounced the law, the blessings and the cursings found in the law of Moses. And they went through the whole thing. I don't know how long they would have been there for, but they recited the law. And so this was a very important place. And then at the end of Joshua's ministry, because they had just come in and taken the land of Canaan. Uh, Those of you who are Old Testament students, you understand that Israel wandered around for 40 years in the wilderness after being delivered from Egypt. And then they were brought into the land with Joshua, came to a place called Gilgal. And then they ended up going up to this place to sort of consecrate the land, to set it apart for God, for God's people. And that's what they did. And at the end of Joshua's campaign of taking the land, and they never took the entire land. Israel to this day has never taken the territory that God gave to her. And it's a remarkable thing that they have been brought back into being as a nation after 2,000 years of being scattered. Uh, Different story, boy, I could rabbit trail on that one. Not gonna, (laughs) I promise. At any rate, so... At the end of Joshua's ministry, there in Joshua 24, I was sitting in our living room last night looking up at a little wall thing we have by the front door. It, it, it quotes Joshua 24, 15, a very famous verse. Uh, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that's because Joshua came back to Shechem. He came back to this place where the woman from Samaria is talking with Jesus at this well hundreds and hundreds of years before. And he says, look, if you want to go and serve the gods of Abraham. Now, Abraham, before God got a hold of him, he was a pagan idolater. He was into all kinds of false worship. His family was into all kinds of stuff on the other side of the river. He says, you want to go and worship the gods on the other side of the river? Go ahead. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And he said that here, the same place where Jesus, I mean, this place is rich with biblical history. I mentioned that last week. So as we go forward now, in verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ, and when he comes, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am. And if your Bible says he, that he is in italics, and the reason is it's been added for translation purposes. Literally, though, what Jesus uses is the covenant name for God from Exodus chapter 3. When Moses says, well, all right, who should I tell Pharaoh is sending me? <clears throat> Burning bush. And, uh, and God says, you tell them I am that I am sent to you. And uh, it's, it, it, this is such a sacred name that the Jews wouldn't even pronounce it. They would just, and if you look in your Old Testament, you see all uppercase letters that says, Lord. That's this, it's I am. And so Jesus is literally telling this woman, you say that Messiah is coming, but I'm telling you, I am. He is flatly stating, you are speaking with Messiah, that you are speaking with Messiah. The one who's been promised to come. And even in their twisted theology, they still look for the Messiah. And and so, I mean, that would have totally gotten a response from her of like, because she's been warming up. We talked about it last week. She starts out with calling Jesus a Jew, and then she sort of warms up a little bit. She starts calling him Sir, and then she says... She says, "Well, you might just be a prophet." You see how she's her thinking on it with him as he's having this dialogue with her, it's it's elevating the whole time as they go along. And so now he's saying, "You know, you've stated correctly. I who speak to you am the one." <laughs> that would have just I mean, think about it. Guys, she would have been undone for this realization. Now she she starts off with just this whole Just kind of stay away from me. She gets really upset with him when he's pressing her about her family. She did not want to talk about her family. That's why she's at the well at noon, because she didn't want to deal with the other women and the other people in uh, the village that would come out to get water. So she's getting it at odd hours. And so now here she is. She's in this place where she has just realized that this dialogue she's having with this guy is not some everyday conversation that you'd have around the well around the water cooler. You know what I mean? It's just like, this is a very unique situation. So the first thing is we see that she's a woman. And in verse 31, the disciples address Jesus as rabbi. Now in that culture, rabbis did not have any dealing with women, period. Uh, Oh, yeah, I'm going to go for it. rabbit trail (laughs) there's a term called misogyny you don't have to remember the term it's one of those 50 cent words you don't have to remember it but what it means is contempt for women ancient civilizations from the fall all right we're talking let's go back to, to adam and eve god designed man and woman in equality and when they fell those roles got perverted And ever since, from that time until Jesus, those roles became more and more perverted to the point where women were treated as property. They were treated as chattel. They were treated as not anywhere near the same level as men. And to the point where the Jews had become misogynist. They were just dreadfully slanted against women. Women could not receive the law. They had no rights. They were able to be bought and sold like slaves. And Jesus, ever so gently. I mean, think about too, look at the roles that women have and and that men have now. And and it's a result of the fall, guys. You have women that either exert this huge amount of influence and they overshoot. And you know, like, hey, I'm wearing the pants around here and uh, nobody cares what you think. Uh, you know, the whole feminist agenda, or they're so subservient, they act like they're lower and less. Both of those are a perversion of the roles that God has designed women for. Men, on the other hand, either have this whole, you know, uh, egotistical you know, submit to me, woman, give me a beer, kind of a thing. (laughs) All right, I know it sounds stereotypical, but it's true. There are men that take that perversion of their role and try to exercise power authority over women. And that's not the way God designed it. It's just not. There are also men that put themselves in subservience to women because they don't have the strength to stand up. And you know, when Stacy and I did a marriage retreat a number of years ago, one of the things we talked about was Ephesians 5. And I'm not going to go that far on this rabbit trail, but I will state, for just for the purpose of making a point, God's design is so beautiful. Jesus is the first one in history to elevate women back to the state that God designed them to be in, in the garden, to equal status as men. Absolutely equal. Are there issues of headship? Absolutely. Am I called to be the priest in my home as the husband? Yes, I am. Does that mean that my wife is less and that I listen to her less? Absolutely not. But the point is, is that Jesus began to gently exercise this influence and authority, and He's doing it here with this woman. And that He is taking this woman who, as I mentioned last week, is an outcast, and she is an outcast woman in an outcast society. She's, in human terms, the lowest of the low, and He comes and He pays her this tremendous amount of respect. He travels all the way to Samaria so that He could save her. I mean, he goes to that length. And it's more than her. I mean, he knew that she would be part of his written word communicated down through the ages, which is awesome. But here she is, a woman living in a rural lifestyle, a a Samaritan woman besides, and, and she has got great value in his eyes. And he's demonstrating that part of what he is doing, guys, is he is restoring women to their rightful place in God's economy. Very, very important that we understand that. When we did our our marriage thing, the, the thing that we were encouraging the people with is men, step up. Assume the role that God has called you to. Women, step in, but not over. And it's very, very important that we understand that there are issues of headship, there is organization, there's, there are things that God has set into place, and people have opinions of that, in, in, in all, and, and I'm not going to go into all of the, the minutia about that, but generally, this I just want to basically bring out, God has elevated us to equal status, and, and he has established order in his kingdom. So please don't think that there's this macho, machismo thing When he uses the male gender in the Bible, I'm going to use it. But when he talks about equality, there is equality between the sexes. Verse 27. So the woman's blown away. It says, At this point, his disciples came. And they marvelled that he talked with a woman. And yet no one said, "Who? What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her?" These guys are slack jawed at this point. They just they come walking up. He's talking with this woman. He sees this woman is obviously moved, and their mouths drop open. I can just picture this scene. They're like, "What on earth are you doing, Jesus?" And remember, these guys are very nationalistic. They're very Jewish men, and and. and They don't get what's going on here. And this whole passage is broken down into three parts. And so I want you to understand that. Pay attention to this too. Verses 1 through 26 is Jesus' dealings with the woman and with the Samaritan culture and all that. And and then from here, uh, for the next little bit, he's dealing with his men because this is sort of parenthetical to the whole story, but John wants to make sure that this gets inserted because he has some very, very important lessons to bring to his guys, okay? So this is discipleship training now that he's going to shift gears and go into because it says here that the woman, in verse 28, she left her water pot and went her way into the city and said to the man, come and see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? He has just told her that he is. Now, I think it's interesting too. Jesus never got a drink from her. She left. And she left her water pot sitting there. And I don't know if, it, I, I just think she got so excited. She got so immersed in what he was telling her. She was so focused on, wow, this, I mean, don't tell me that you wouldn't be completely blown away if you had this conversation with Jesus and you didn't know who he was when you first met him. I mean, this is a remarkable scene. This is a mind-blowing scene. I mean, I picture her cuddling off to the city. I mean, going down the dirt path, seeing dust coming up in in her wake because she's in a hurry to get to these guys. And think about it too. This is a woman that's at the well at noon. She doesn't want to talk to anybody. She doesn't want any interaction. She doesn't want to hear the whispers and the snide remarks about, oh, yeah, that's her, that's the, uh, you know, that woman, oh, that one. And she can't shut up at this point. You couldn't put a sock in her mouth and get her to show She would have pulled that baby out and gone right in. She goes right in and she starts telling everybody she comes into contact with. You gotta come and check this guy out. He told me all about my life. And... And it wasn't good what he told her about her life even. But she's still, you know, I want you to know, this guy is amazing. Could this be the Christ? Could this be the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for since our forefathers taught us years and years and years before? I mean, this is an exciting scene. And she is excited. She is blown away. She has just had an encounter with God that will change her forever. I can't wait till we get to heaven. We will meet her. I am convinced. Unlikely candidate? Yeah. But God loves to go after the unlikely candidate, doesn't He? He loves to go after the one that we might pass right by. He loves to go after the one that slipped through the cracks. He loves to go after the one that maybe appears on the outside to be hardened up about the things God don't give me that God stuff. I love to watch those kind fall. I have to admit there's a little pleasure in that because it's like, you know what? We all have this, this exterior. And, and before coming to Christ, man, I was, just, I was aggressively, just don't even give me this stuff. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear that God stuff. You know, and I, I looked at my heritage and you know, a weird religion that I was involved in and all of that. And I just didn't want to hear it. She starts out not wanting to hear it, but she ends up running off into town, never getting the guy a drink of water, and you can't, you can't stop her. And the whole town, all these guys begin coming out. Verse 30, and when they went out of the city, they came to him, and he just told her that he's the one. Verse 31, and in the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Eat. But Jesus said to them I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore verse 33 the disciples said to one another has anyone brought him anything to eat? Did somebody give him a sandwich? This is the fourth time. I'm going to take uh, this is a this is a planned rabbit trail. <laughs> this is the fourth time in the gospel of John we see blatant spiritual blindness surface. And guys, don't think that it's just by rote. When I pray, and you guys, have it, just in, in the months that we've been here, uh, when I pray, Lord, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to understand. Gang, that's not, that's not a prayer that I pray by rote. I pray that when Stacey and I pray for you guys, we pray that for all of us, myself included, Because if God doesn't do it, it's not going to happen. If he doesn't open my heart and by his Holy Spirit give me understanding, illumination, it's not going to happen. The first time we see spiritual blindness show up here in the Gospel of John is in chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, where Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. And the Jews said to him, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it in three days? They just couldn't see. And he was talking about this temple is my body. As I mentioned a few moments ago, it's not about the physical building. He's saying, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days, talking about his resurrection. Spiritual blindness. They couldn't get there. They can't get there from here. The second we see it in chapter three, verses three and four, where Jesus uh, said to Nicodemus, "Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God." Nicodemus's response: "How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born?" He's not getting terms we've looked at over and over again since the beginning of this gospel. What Jesus introduced. This is something, and he'll speak of it in in physical terms, in material terms, but he's talking about the immaterial. He's talking about the spiritual. And folks, in order for us to understand the things of God, we've got to make that leap. We've got to make that leap from the physical to the spiritual. Otherwise, it's blah, 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 blah. So Nicodemus doesn't get it. He doesn't understand. He's talking about, you need a whole new life, Nicodemus. This life you've got, it's dead. You've got to be born again. The second or the third time we see spiritual blindness show up in this gospel is earlier in this chapter with the woman here. Jesus says to her, if you knew the gift of God and he who says it to you, give me a drink, you'd have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman says, sir, you don't have anything to draw with. You don't have a bucket. And the well's deep. And what Jesus is saying is I am the living water. Receive from me and drink life to yourself but as long as you keep it on a physical plane you're not going to see it that's why jesus says in luke chapter 8 to his men after he gives the parable of the sower the parable of the soils and i mentioned it before but it's worth mentioning again he, gives, he outlines four conditions of the human heart there. He talks about the soil that's in the thorns and the hard road and, all, and then the fertile ground and, and uh, all of that and, and in the, the, the thorns and all. And the guys come up to him and say, what are you talking about, Jesus? Because they didn't get it. Spiritual blindness was pervasive with them as well because we need the Holy Spirit to give us discernment on these things. And so he said, to you, it's been given to know and understand the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And he tells them what each of those soils represents. He says, but to the rest, it's in parables. And the parables, interesting, uh, we get to a point where we're teaching on parables. They do two things. They reveal truth to those who believe, but they actually conceal truth from those who do not because the just shall live by faith. We, it's got to be by faith. We have to approach him by faith. And what is faith? It's, it's the essence of things that we don't see. It's the substance of things hoped for and the essence of things not seen. It's what it tells us in, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse one. And so the guys here, they're not getting it. They come up and they say, well, I don't know, Jesus, you know, who, who? <laughs> that's the fourth one. What we're looking at now is uh, when they said, "Rabbi, eat," and, and, and he says, "I've got food you don't know about." And they say, "Well, who brought him a sandwich?" You know, who? They're looking at each other like, "Did you? I, I didn't see him." You know, and they're they're puzzled. There's a pattern here. Destroy this temple took forty six years. Born again, womb's too small. Living water, you don't have a bucket. I have food. Who gave him sandwich? Do you see the pattern? And John is very clear to bring this out. By the anointing of the Spirit as he writes this, because there's, he's going somewhere with this. Why would the spiritual blindness be in place? I mean, the Bible tells us that the God of this world has blinded the minds, that blinded the eyes of the unbelieving, that they not be able to see. That is not to say the devil made me do it. Please. I, you know, I don't. No, no, no. Yes, is he involved? Absolutely. But you have to cooperate with that. The God of this world will blind your eyes if you want to be blind. And God is faithful to pull those blinders off if you want to see. will talk about that as we go. So there's two reasons for spiritual blindness. One is to not be born again, to not Understand the things of God. To not have come to a place where you're appropriating the truth of God's word and understanding that that's how he revealed himself and you actually can get to know him, have a personal relationship with him by understanding how he has revealed himself here. His character, his nature, his attributes, who he is, what he's about. The gospel about Jesus going to that cross. If I was the only one born, he still would have gone and I would be guaranteed heaven. I would be guaranteed life forever in his presence on that one fact. Amazing. The second reason is, as believers, we can allow our hearing to be dull. In Hebrews chapter 5, the writer there says, you know, you ought to be teachers by now. He's not talking about Bible teachers. He's talking about, you should be able to communicate these truths to other people by now. But you know what? You've become dull of hearing. Why? There's one word, worldliness. You know, uh, I mentioned uh, recently that there, there seems to be, and there's some disquieting trends that are going on in the church these days as far as entertainment goes. If you're here for the show, you're in the wrong church. Amen. And praise God. This is what we've got. And, and, and there's also just flat out worldliness. How close can I live to the world? How much can I look like the world? How can I have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom and still call myself a Christian and still feel pretty good about things? I'll tell you what, there's a degree of self-deception that comes into that, folks. Uh, I've likened trying to live that way. Uh, it's like, have you ever gotten into a boat and that, that first step into the boat, it like does this Try to live your life with one foot on a pier and one foot in the boat. That's what it's like. The Bible says that man, man will be unstable in all his ways. James talks about it. He says that man is double-minded. He talks about double-mindedness as being worldly-minded, not, not in a good way, and spiritually-minded. And that's because you're dull of hearing, and, and, and you kind of yawn at the things of God. You maybe have been around the church for a long time, and it really doesn't have that shine that it did. Spiritual blindness, it's crouching at your door if that's the case. There's a remedy. We'll talk about that. We need the life-giving and illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. This is why he needed to go to Samaria. We see in the beginning of this chapter, it says he needed to go to Samaria. Not he wanted to, but he needed to because the father had commissioned him for this work. A couple of things about his food. Think about it. Food is your source of energy, right? I mean, we eat because we need to have energy to live. So what he's literally saying here, and this is very subtle, but it's, it's definitely in the text. He's saying, my source of energy for doing God's will is doing God's will. All right, did your brain just tie up in knots? Mine did when I first started figuring this out. It's like, wait a minute. His food is to do the will of him who sent him, and, and that food is doing his will, so he is strengthened by doing the thing that brings him strength. I see his divine nature revealed in this statement. I mean, this is God. Yes, of course, as a man, Jesus had to have physical food. There's no question about it. He had to eat. He was fully man, fully God. 100% both simultaneously. Not part and part, no. 100% both, God and man. So as a man, yes, he needed to eat. He needed lunch. But what he's bringing across to his guys here is my divine prerogative, my divine mission is to carry out the Father's work, and I feed on that. The second thing, is his food is to give life. John chapter 12, 49 and 50, Jesus says, I haven't spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command. What I should say, and what I should speak. And I know that his command is, everlasting life. Fascinating. And we see that carried out here in this passage as well. So what Jesus is saying is I am bringing life to these people. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. And and the command I've received from him is to bring life to people. And he's bringing life to this woman and in turn she's going out and you cannot shut her up. She is so excited about the fact that she has just had an encounter with God. When was the last time you got really excited? And this is not meant to produce guilt, but I mean to be excited about him. I'll tell you what, guys. I spent half my day, part of my day Thursday and half my day Friday uh, with another pastor talking about an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the nation of Kenya in Eastern Africa. And I believe, and we're still praying through the details, but fascinating Wonderful opportunity that's been presented to us as a church. Um, the harvest is rich. I'm telling you, it is a, there's uh, tremendous things going on there. And, and I'll have more to say about that as we go. But we're uh, very, very excited. Pray for Kenya. Pray for Calvary Chapel and Kenya. Exciting stuff. So his food is to give life. Verse 35. He says, Do you not say there's still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields for they're already white for harvest. He's not talking about wheat. This wasn't even a time of year where anything was ripe. He's talking about the people coming out of the city. And he's telling his men, and you know, In Bible language, lift up your eyes. He's saying, lift up your eyes. In American vernacular, you know what he's saying? Open your eyes. Open your eyes. Just look. Just look. The fields are white for harvest. And he's talking about a harvest of souls. He's talking about these people that would have been just totally passed off. These people that would have been rejected. Had he not shown up, I mean, his men would have passed right over it. They were blown away. They didn't, they couldn't understand why he's having his dealings with Samaritans to begin with. They probably were pretty perplexed and a little intimidated when he crossed the boundary from Judea into Samaria. And now he's talking with his woman and he's like, and and he's telling his guys here. He's saying, look, you, you say that the harvest is still four months off. He says, this is what you guys say. And that was, that was sort of a saying, evidently, in the first century. Well, you know, we've got time. Harvest is four months away. In an agrarian society, they were really busy when they planted, when they sowed. And they were really busy when they reaped. And in between, you know, we, we would say, Mañana, there's time. No big deal. I need to get a new job. Eh, yeah, I'll look another day. Ah, you know, there's no, it's not real pressing. And he's basically busting these guys. He's saying, you know, you say there's four months till the harvest, but I'm telling you the harvest is right here under your nose. And all you have to do is look. And folks, all we have to do is look. Look. I don't ever want us to be identified as a church that is just drawn inward. I want for us to be excited at the fact that God has called us and he has assembled us for the purpose of reaching outward. Whether it's Kenya or on Highway 99, it doesn't matter. What matters is what's the condition of our hearts as we fulfill and carry out the Great Commission. And and yes, Sunday is for us, okay? This is a time where we get together, where we're strengthened. This is a time where we get to worship our Lord, where we get to, to build relationships with one another through the fellowship that we share. And it's a time where the gospel can go out and people are given opportunity to respond, maybe for the first time, to to Jesus, the one who's touching hearts even now. Yeah, so Sunday's for us. It's the huddle. The rest of the week is when we run the plays. What does my life look like? Uh, These are probing questions because when Jesus says lift up your eyes, he's giving the remedy to spiritual blindness. You don't want to be spiritually blind? Open your eyes. Look. Not through the eyes of your physical being, but through the eyes of your heart. A friend that wrote a song a number of years ago when he would go do outreaches, part of the lyrics to the song was, you can see him with your heart when you stop looking with your eyes. Beautiful lyrics, beautiful truth. So when he says, open your eyes, lift up your eyes to his men, he's saying, look at what's right in front of you. And church, I submit to you, look at what's right in front of us. There's a harvest out there. Oh, well, there's, you know, there's just not that many people that get saved anymore. Yeah, well, you know, I came to church, came to the Lord during the Jesus movement. Yeah, I'm that old. And, and, and people were coming in, you know, in droves. That doesn't change the Great Commission because we are not results oriented. We are Christ oriented. He'll take care of the results. Jesus said upon this rock, I will build my church. I am so glad as a pastor, it's not my job to grow this church. It's his job. He will build the church. And the apostles in the book of Acts, they prayed, Lord, add to the church daily such as should be saved. You do the work. We're just going to continue. We, you know, Yeah, we're a little busy to be waiting tables, so raise up some people to do that. And I pray for people that will help with the ministry here because there's a lot to do. But the point is, is that We're about our father's business. Not ingrown. Yeah, love the fellowship. Love all of that. Nothing wrong with that. But we want to be outwardly focused. Verse 36. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life. Here's that concept again. Remember, he's talking about my food. My food is to give life. Eternal life and gathers fruit for eternal life that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. So we all participate in the harvest as we talk about outreach, as we talk about this uh, opportunity that we have as a church to get behind uh, some mission work in Kenya. You don't have to go to Kenya to be a part of it, you have to pray. You might want to be part of the support. I mean, there's all kinds of different ways that we can be a part of that work, and we share in the blessings. We share in the blessings when we do that. And and it, he says, you you gather fruit for eternal life. uh, That he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. Have you ever led somebody to the Lord? I remember, you know, there have been times, it's like, I remember this one kid that, that I discipled for a long time when he came to the Lord. It was so exciting. And I remember feeling pretty good when, yeah, he came to the Lord, man. And then I met his grandmother. She'd been praying for him for 20 years. And I went, oh, yeah, I had a little part in that. <laughs> you don't know what's been going into someone's life You don't know who's been praying, Lord, send a worker into that harvest. Send somebody to tell them about you. I am so afraid they're going to go through this life and if they don't grab a hold of Jesus, they will not see God. The stakes are life and death. You guys know that. That have been around for a while. It's life and death. It's eternity in his presence or eternity out of his presence in torment. I didn't write it. I wish it didn't say that. I've told you that before, but it does. High stakes. Verse 37, For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. And I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored. He's talking about the prophets here now. Uh, Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. This here, this brand new work, Jesus on the scene. Interesting that his first evangelistic crusade is with a bunch of foreigners. The Jews were scandalized by this guy. They hated the fact that he just didn't stay within their own borders. I mean, they didn't like his message anyway, but at least he could have stayed home with it. (laughs) And he goes to Samaria. He goes to those guys, you know, like, oh, that really bad neighborhood. You're going to have to go to church with these people? Yeah. That's the mind of Christ. Verse 39, and many of the Samaritans of that city, now he switches back the narrative, John switches the narrative back from his guys back to the Samaritans. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word he, the woman had testified. He told me all that I ever did. And you know, I just, every time I read that, I think, ooh, I would cringe. It's like, oh I don't want to know what, all that she ever did. She was married five times and living with a guy. It's like, Really? Okay, but she doesn't care at this point. She grasps the full gravity of what he's doing in her life. To be forgiven is to be forgiven. I mean, just think about it, guys. The word forgiveness, when I forgive, what it means literally is to release that person from the offense. And so when God forgives me for everything I ever thought, said, or did, he says, I release you from that offense. I release you from the power of sin in your life. I release you from the penalty of sin. And in the future, I will release you from the presence of sin because we still deal with it, don't we? Beautiful, beautiful plan. So they're looking at, they're, they're going on her word at this point. Yeah, we believe because we're coming to him because of what you've told us. Verse 40, so when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with him and he stayed there two days and many more believed because of his own word. As I mentioned, this is one very unlikely conversion and one very common evangelist. There was nothing special about her, nothing special. As a matter of fact, if you were gonna ask her if she was qualified for seminary, you probably would have passed. Did I say seminary or cemetery? Anyway, um, but the point is, she's not somebody that we would look at and say, hey man, you want to sign up for evangelism school? Get all your ducks in a row. She didn't even have any ducks, let alone have them in a row. Her life was a mess. But there's no mess that's bigger than his ability to come in and to clean it up and to set that person on the right path. I love that about Jesus. Verse 42, And they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this indeed is the Christ, the Savior of the world. You know, in leading someone to the Lord, my witness is a temporary voice. I've had privilege to lead people to the Lord over the years, and and, and it starts out that way. They're like, "Wow, you know, I see you have a different life, John. You know, I want what you've got." And sometimes that's spoken. Sometimes it's not. But it's a temporary voice. And, and, and you know, and I'll tell them, yeah, stick around long enough. I'll let you down <laughs> because I'm human. But I'm introducing you to the one who never will let you down. I'm introducing you to the one who will never abuse the relationship. I'm showing you where to find power to live that you will not find in any other earthly means. And as that person grabs a hold of Christ and as that person begins to grow, and it very naturally should, the focus should shift off of you being the one that led them, that one that was used to reap, perhaps somebody else had sowed and prayed and done all that work that you don't even see. And the focus should come off of me and onto the Lord as I hand that person off to the Lord, as I hand that person off to Jesus. That's how evangelism goes. And we're looking at also having some evangelism training here in March. Just uh, keep that in mind. We're going to do it on a Saturday. Uh, We'll have more on that as we go along too. So the point is, is it's no longer based upon what I've said, but upon his word to them. Verse 43, now after two days, he departed from there and went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Remember, uh, when he went back to Nazareth uh, and he opened up the, the scroll of Isaiah, in the other Gospels, he opens up the scroll, and he's like in Luke 3.18. He says, you know, I've come to restore sight to the blind and to heal the lame and all that. And he says today, he closes the, the scroll, he sits down, hands it to the attendant, and he says today the scripture is fulfilling your presence. And they wanted to kill him. They They literally wanted to tear him limb from limb and throw him over the cliff in Nazareth. And so, you know, he's... Going to Galilee, but he's going to avoid Nazareth at this point because he knows that he's not welcome there. You know, they look at him as, well, that's the carpenter's son. They don't look at him as, well, that might be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. So he bypasses Nazareth. Uh, He's going to go up. We're going to look next week. He goes back to Cana where he did, remember, the the first miracle, the first sign uh, to Cana in Galilee, which is sort of northwest of Nazareth. He's on his way there. It says, so when he came to Galilee, verse 45, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast. For they also had gone to the feast. So he comes and he gets a really warm welcome from the Galileans. The ones that had seen him at the feast, they had watched as he turned over the tables of the money changers. They had watched as he upset the religious establishment of their day. They had watched as he had gathered crowds unto himself with this marvelous, powerful teaching that he did. They'd seen him down by the Jordan River as his men were were baptizing. They'd seen that there is this new work that is taking hold and the crowds were beginning to gather. That's why he left Judea to begin with. He was starting to draw crowds. He was gaining popularity. This, he hasn't hit the zenith of his popularity yet, but it's, he's gaining momentum. And he got out of there because the Jews, he didn't, his hour was not yet come. Remember, he says that a lot. My hour has not yet come. It's not time for me to take the cup. And so he would know when that time would be, and he would purposely go to Judea. He'd go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. When his hour had come, but now he goes north and he gets a very warm welcome from the people. He'd already had a reputation. So this guy's different. This guy's approachable. He has words of life. Three things in closing. Interesting, I mentioned this, but I, just to, to bring it full circle. As, as knowledge of Jesus expands, this woman's esteem and the Samaritan's esteem for him grows. Uh, Verse 9, how is it that you, a Jew, have anything to do with me? She she calls him a Jew. Verse 11, she addresses him as sir. Verse 19, she addresses him as a prophet. Oh, you might be a prophet. Verse 29, could this be the Christ? Do you see this? This is growing. And verse 42, Savior of the world. what happens in our lives as knowledge of him increases it's not just head knowledge it's not just so I can know stuff about God uh, talking with one of the brothers here is we, 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 we talk about Steve <laughs> and it's not so I can know about Steve I don't want to know about Steve I want to know Steve I want to understand Steve I want to know what he's like I want to know what he's about I want a relationship with Steve I, don't, I can't have a relationship with somebody I just want to know about See, that's the difference. These people could have just stopped at knowing about Jesus, but he didn't stop there. He said, no, I'm going to stick around for a couple of days. I want you to know me. And their response, well, we stopped believing in you because of what that woman said. Now we believe in you because of what you're telling us yourself. There's this personal relationship that's being built, and it's a pattern for what happens in our lives. The second thing, so we see these three sections here, verses 1 through 26, and then 39 through 42 being to the woman and to the Samaritans. But we can't ignore verses 27 through 38 where he addresses his men and he gives them very clear instruction. And we, can take, we do well to take our lessons from it. The first is God is no respecter of persons. How dare us think that we can qualify or quantify who should be saved and who shouldn't. You know, should it be that, that person that, that nobody will pay any attention to? Absolutely, it should. Maybe that person is that standing next to me in the grocery store, and I say, wow, they haven't bathed in a while. It doesn't matter. God's no respecter of persons, and neither should we be. We don't get to choose. Salvation is offered to all. And you know, I I sometimes go to that passage where it says, you know, we we maybe unwittingly have entertained angels. Think. Who might be that person that I share the life-giving love of Christ with, that perhaps I've overlooked? He comes to Samaria for one woman. And he also gives instruction to his disciples while he's doing it. This is a very teachable moment for his men. And then he comes for the rest of the city. He comes to the woman, he comes to his disciples, to his men, and he comes to you and I through the timelessness of his word. This story is not just a great Bible story. It's a great story. I mean, I can't wait. I hope, I have mentioned before, I hope we get to see this stuff played out again on the stage of eternity. Because, I mean, this is a, I, I would just love to watch this unfold. But it doesn't stop at being a great story. These are words of life. What segments of society do I maybe write off? If God is no respecter of persons, is there a place in me where maybe I am a respecter of persons? Acts chapter 1, verse 8 was in your bulletin this morning. I don't know if you noticed in the passage to ponder section. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus made it a point when he gave the Great Commission to include the tough neighborhood, to include the outcast people, to include the ones that the world wouldn't include on purpose, on purpose. We like the big crusades. You know, I, I, I still love watching Billy Graham reruns. I mean, I love, you know, when George Beverly Shea gets out there and sings, Just As I Am, and you start seeing the people filter down. I mean, I love that. But most of what happens in the kingdom of God is one-on-one. Most of what takes place is a changed life changing a life. Most of what takes place is, place is healthy sheep begetting healthy sheep. That's our job. That's our calling. It's a call that goes to every one of us. Not, oh well, you know, I kind of like hanging with other people in the body. That's fine. But this is a universal call. That ministry of reconciliation that we've been talking about goes to all of us. And if unbelief or worldliness has crept in, ask the Lord to deal with it in your life. Look up. Open your eyes. Lift up your eyes. See the work he wants to do in you and through you to this dying, screwed up, enslaved world around us. Pretty dark out there, guys. We have the light of Christ. Let's use it. Let's pray. Father, I'm just moved at the work of your Holy Spirit. Deliver us from spiritual blindness. Cause us to be a people that are alive and awake and eager to embrace those around us in the same manner as you embrace this woman in Samaria. Lord, give us the gift of boldness that we could be those ambassadors, that we could be those ones who bring your love to a loveless world. And for anyone in here this morning that perhaps doesn't know Christ, or perhaps you've been churched, but you don't have a personal relationship I want to encourage you, my friend. Jesus is knocking on your door in the same way as he came to this woman. He comes in love and in humility and his father's food is to bring you life. His hand is outstretched. The father seeks those to worship him in spirit and truth. All you need to do is to take it. I pray that that would be the transaction that you make today. Let his words bring life. Come and see me afterwards if that's the transaction that you're making today. I want to talk with you for the rest of us father we uh, I pray that you would forgive me for my impiety false piety, Lord that you would use me in new ways I pray for that for each of my brothers and sisters here that that we as a church would move forward as a group, but as a group of individuals who are simply sold out for you and for the life-giving message of the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that you've assembled us here this morning. We pray for the servants meeting uh, coming up, that you would just get a hold of us, perhaps in some new ways. We commit the rest of this day to you. We commit our hearts afresh to you. And we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.